Well, thank you again for joining me on this edition of the Freed Thinker podcast and blog and vlog. This is going live on the YouTube channel. So for those listening by podcast, uh, there won't be any bumper music or anything like that this time because I won't be editing. Uh, Right now I'm actually at church and I'm waiting for our remote services to load and convert and do all its fun stuff. So I have a little bit of time. So I thought I would just get an episode out dealing with some of the objections that I commonly get. So let's go to that now. So a common question people ask me concerns the history of Israel, specifically the history of the Jews in Egypt sometime around the 15th to the 12th century BCE, and if that happened or not. Now, I'm sometimes surprised by many of the comments, usually for one of two reasons. They either seem blissfully unaware that any real problem exists in the dating of the composition of the Exodus narratives and the Pentateuch uh, at larger, let alone the historicity of proto-Israel outside of the Levant, or they think it's such an open and shut case that the narratives were composed in the late first millennium and that the biblical accounts are total fabrications. Both of those extremes seem totally out of touch with the research on the issue. In response to these questions and comments, I just want to spend a bit of time on why I believe in the historicity of the Egypt and Exodus narrative and hold to the traditional early dating of their compositions. This doesn't mean that I don't recognize that there are difficulties in adopting such a position. I simply think the weight of the evidence is in that direction. Now, before I begin, I want to also deal with one objection that I know will be raised against my overall method, and then state one presupposition that I'll be working off of. The objection is that because I believe the Bible already, that I'm simply arguing in a circle in order to affirm the Bible. I think that any common sense reading of what I'm about to present will refute that claim on its own, but I would also like to specifically state that I'm giving arguments here for exactly why I believe the biblical accounts. We Christians are commonly asked for evidence for why we believe what we believe. It's to that end that I wish to attempt to achieve in uh, in this short video. I'm also not going to be arguing that the Bible is true because it's inspired or anything of that nature, but rather that the accounts are historically reliable, composed at the traditional early dates in accord with everything we know about the ancient Near East during that time frame. I think this objection is more ideologically driven against anyone who attempts to defend the Bible in order uh, in any manner and is not substantive in the slightest and actually represents a kind of bias on the skeptic that it's the, the, the text is absolutely absurd and nonsense and anyone who defends it has to be you know, engaging in some type of circular reasoning. That's actually a bias of its own. Now, the presupposition that I'm going to be working with is one that I think any historian or student of history will just have no problem conceding. That presupposition is merely that ancient writers are not modern writers. It seems somewhat redundant and unnecessary to make this point explicitly, but let me hash it out a little bit. By this assumption, I mean to imply several things. Firstly, the ancient writers should be understood to write within the confines of normal literary structures that were contemporaneous with their culture and should not be forced to keep a standard of modern historiographic or journalistic exactitude, if we can even say that's accomplished today, by the way. 
This means that the ancient author should be read according to his original authorial intent within the structures of literature at the time, including factors such as genre or context issues like historical context, cultural, political issues, themes, polemics, rhetoric, and so forth. The second thing that I want to, to state by this assumption is that the ancient writers did not spend four years for an undergraduate degree, several years for a master's, even countless more for a PhD, or do postdoc work, all focused on the historical insights of centuries of historical study, archaeology, epiography, and onomasiology, which is the study of names. They would have been almost completely unaware of cultural practices, linguistic stru structures, etymology, rhetorical devices, etc. from generations past of their own culture, let alone centuries removed from an entirely other culture. This is going to come into play more dramatically when we realize that a late first millennium Hebrew scribe would have known next to nothing, if anything, about the finer nuances of second intermediate or empire age Egyptian culture, politics, rhetoric, polemical devices, culture, and so forth. That will become apparent as we go. <clears throat> Let me also give a couple of sources. Sometimes people are like, oh, well, I don't have to say, name my sources if you don't name your sources. This isn't going to be all of them. This is not an exhaustive bibliography by any means. It's not even a bibliography. I'm just going to be giving some of the major academic books that, uh, that I used for this um, and that you can research as well and find pretty easily. I'm not going to, I'm trying not to give articles that people are like, oh, well, I don't have Atla access, so I can never actually verify your source. These are books that you can get on Amazon easily and fact check this. I'm primarily going to be relying on these public sources then for this. Again, it's not even exhaustive. So you can see something like uh, Daryl Block's uh, book where he's the main editor. It's called Israel, Ancient Kingdom or Late Invention, which is a collection of academic essays. Uh, John Currid's book, Ancient Egypt and the Old Testament. James Hoffmeyer's book, Israel and Egypt. Kenneth Kitchen's book on the reliability of the Old Testament. And then the anthology edited by Long, Baker and Wynnum called Windows into Old Testament history. Now, none of those books are page turners, trust me, and sometimes they're pretty technical and dry, which may explain the endurance of the leftist extreme who rejects all arguments for the traditional dating as passé since they might not just be reading some of these books. Though this may also be due to the limited range of evidence allowed to be part of the discussion. Uh, many of you who've listened to me uh, before on other episodes having to deal with ancient Near Eastern and, and context will undoubtedly remember comments about the total lack of um, evidences that there are. And here they're thinking of uh, they're thinking of stellas and archaeology and coins. Uh, my my uh, my my friend <laughs> my my friend Jake Farwarton, uh, who used to do the Imaginary Friends uh, podcast, uh, used to point to the total lack of sorry for the cussing the total lack of shits petrified shits found in the Sinai Desert, for example. Now. While the discussion uh, is not nearly deep enough to evaluate Jake's uh, and other people's range of acceptable evidences, what I commonly find is that many skeptics will preclude any arguments, uh, or at least most of them, that don't rely solely on empirically verifiable evidence. And by this, again, they mean that unless something like Richard Carrier believes it, then they won't. 
since most haven't actually ever cracked open a history book, specifically a book about uh, about this time period. They don't know anything about how ancient historiography is to be done, and really they just parrot what they hear from other online infidel type of atheistic fundamentalists and mythicists. They don't actually go through the detailed work of how historiography happens, what criteria we use, and how we know most of what we know about the ancient world. You can see this in their response to uh, to books uh, like uh, like Michael Kruger. Um, you can see it to books like Mike Lacona on the resurrection, where they go through these detailed uh, ways that we do history. They lay out their presuppositions. They lay out their methods. And people will be like, oh, well, you know, as a Christian doing history or just begging the question, they just show they don't understand what the historiographic method is. However, Anyone who's trained in historical study or who even is just familiar with some of the works about how history is done. I know Jonathan uh, Pritchett recently on the Trinity uh, on, on uh, uh, the, the, the Trinio radio show uh, de dealt with I, I forget the name of the skeptic who was responding to an interview with Michael Kona on his book about the resurrection. And he showed all these stacks of books that a lot of us have had to read for our, 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 our graduates studies dealing with how historiographic works. Well, anyone who's, who's, who's familiar with historiographic studies knows that while some of these evidences, coins, stellas, all that kind of stuff, those types of things are great. I mean, who doesn't want a great Indiana Jones moment where that treasure trove of archaeological physical evidence is found? They're just super rare. Uh, they're so much more rare than most people think, especially coins, which you're really only going to get coins minted after the rulers. You're not going to know what's happening uh, outside of outside of really texts for a lot of things having to do with generals and, and major politicians and things like that let alone what's happening uh, with people who aren't in the upper echelons of society at that time. So we have to remember, though, historical study moves on just fine without those types of things for the vast majority of people and events due to the use of a ton of other kinds of evidences and arguments that are available to us. And it's to some of those arguments and evidence that we're going to turn now when we're dealing with Israel and Egypt. Now, most of the evidence I'm going to provide here will be of what I call a dovetail evidence, right? That is that there it's the cumulative evidence is better explained within a specific context over other contexts. It, it, it completely makes sense. It dovetails with what we know about a specific context and it breaks down. It makes no sense within another context. So for much of what we'll see that an earlier second intermediate period or empire period of Egypt uh, that context fits the composition of the Egypt, Egypt Exodus narratives in the Pentateuch rather than a later post-exilic, uh, you know, fourth, uh, fourth or fifth century BCE context. Okay, so what are some of those evidences? First, source criticism is being strongly re-examined and often completely abandoned in favor of more literary approaches to the text. This has been the case for about 10 or 15 years. It's been about the case for about <laughs> as long as, as, as source criticism and form criticism and redaction criticism have even been around. Uh, the con you know conservative scholarship have been like, mm, there's major problems with that. But even in now kind of liberal and critical scholarship, 
they're being massively re-examined in the last 10 or 15 years or so. And so when someone now tries to tout source criticism or form criticism or redaction criticism as if it's gospel truth and not what it really is uh, these days, which is really a thesis in crisis, they reveal a reliance on quite outdated research and information. We can find good examples of this in the works of such scholars such as Charles Isbell, Gordon Davies, G. Fisher, Thomas Thompson, and so forth. In fact, speaking of source theory, Thompson says that it is, quote, no longer sufficient to maintain such a radical interpretation of narrative, one which carries us so far from any immediate reading of the text, end quote. And that's on page 155 of his origin, tradi uh, origin tradition. We, we've also come to find that key words, themes, whole narrative units often cross the boundaries set down by traditional source critics. So if someone wants to come along and say, ah, but source criticism disproves everything you're about to say, you're just out of touch with where even critical scholarship is coming to these days. Second, <clears throat> there's a massive influx of Semites into Egypt during the Old Kingdom period, which is, you know, circa 2190 to the Second Intermediate Period, circa 1786 to 1550. Now, epigraphic and archaeological evidence all point to the fact that this massive mig uh, immigration to Egypt from the Levant was to seek relief from drought and the famine in Canaan. We'll, we'll also see later that there was uh, some who were brought during this period as military captives. Now, if a later date is assumed, commonly suggested to be a kind of post-exilic uh, during the mid to late first millennium, there seems to be no corresponding period in which the narrative would dovetail with these historical conditions. After the expulsion of the Hyksos, at, at the end of the 17th dynasty approximately, there seems to be a drastic decline in Semitic presence with no other possible periods of massive migration to Egypt that would correspond to the biblical events. These massive levels of Semitic presence in Egypt and the common pattern of migration to escape drought and famine correspond nicely with the patriarchal period of Israelite history. Next, Onomasiology, which is the study of names, not just, you know, what names mean and that kind of stuff, but it, it goes through actually kind of derivations uh, of names that were popular in given time frames and in geographic areas. So um, anyone familiar with Richard Bauckham and his, his, his use of onomasiology in the Gospels, where he, he does kind of standard derivations and the popularity of names within periods of centuries, so, you know, early 5th century early first century, mid first century, you know, late first century, uh, you know, in, in Israel compared to North Africa, compared to, uh, compared to Europe or compared to Rome, you can kind of find these derivations of names and what, and, you know, what someone more likely would have been called and, and so forth. So, you know, Bauckham shows that names like Joseph uh, and, and Miriam, by the way, all Marys in the New Testament are Miriam, all, Jake, uh, all, all Jameses are actually Jacobs, um, just so you know, those actually appear in the same type of regularity uh, as early to mid first century Israel. Um, they, they, they kind of appear in the biblical text with the same regularity as they do in that context. 
whereas they don't appear in the same regularity as those names do in North Africa or in Rome, uh, either in that time period or later when some of the critical scholars say that these types of texts were written. So the same thing happens with onomasiology when we're dealing with Old Testament texts dealing with Egypt. Uh, so we can look at onomasiology, and it reveals that the names used for uh, Joseph, Moses, <clears throat> and in the Exodus cycles are clearly Egyptian in etymology, though their exact etymological roots aren't always agreed upon, but it's clear that they have come through an Egyptian etymology to get into the biblical text. And some of them are only present in their forms during that second intermediate and empire periods of Egyptian history. Examples of that are uh, names like Potiphar, Aseneth, Zephaneth, Penea, and, and even something like the Hartumim or the magicians in Pharaoh's court. Those are words and names uh, that only really existed in that form that we find it in a, as a transliteration into biblical Hebrew during that second intermediate and empire period. They definitely did not exist later in the late uh, first millennium <clears throat> in the post-exile. We can also see this uh, Joseph's title as ruler over Egypt had no known comparative uh, during Israel's monarchy or in the post-exile, but it was present during the second intermediate and empire periods in Egypt. We can see the uses of city names like Ramesses or Ramesses, so it's the same thing, but it has, it has the, 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 the double long vowel at the beginning, almost a millennium after the Delta capital was abandoned in 1100 BCE, just wouldn't make any sense. We actually see that what happens in, in Old Testament narrative when it's writing about a historical period and the city has changed names. The biblical authors will often use the new name in place of what the name would have been for that city at the time, or they'll say this city, which is now called so-and-so. They don't do that with Ramesses. Ramesses fell in about 1100 BCE and it's still called Ramesses in the text, but that would not have been the practice all the way through into the late first century. Uh, going on, we can see Joseph was bought as a slave for 20 shekels. Now, the average price of a slave uh, during the first uh, half of the second millennium was 20 shekels. So about the time of the, uh, of the early dating, that actually was the, the right price. During the second half of the, the, the first millennium, due to inflation, the average price had gone up to 30, sometimes 50 shekels. By the, millennia, by the, by the end of, of the first millennium, when many critics want to place the composition of Exodus, that price would have been well in excess of 50 shekels, sometimes up to 60 shekels. So should we expect that the author redacted their own narrative to account for inflation, from almost a millennium before just to try and fool historians that he didn't even know would exist in our time nearly 3,000 years later, despite them not having any type of de developed historiographic methodology for understanding these types of these types of trends and markers and indicators from, again, not only their own relative history, but from a history over a millennium before in a different culture on a different continent. They just didn't do that type of history back then. Uh, so, but we would have to imagine that, that uh, you know, the post-exilic uh, priests who were writing these documents, according to the, 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 the critical account, 
would have been so, so ahead of their time that they would have anticipated modern historiographic methods uh, of, of tracking these types of inflationary models over time across continents and cultures and dealing with these types of onomasiology issues. It's just beggars uh, incredulity. Now, the, the intentional lack of a proper name for Pharaoh during the Moses cycle also reveals an earlier Egyptian form of polemics rather than a later Babylonian or Assyrian one. It's been long debated whether or not the omission of Pharaoh's name in the Moses cycle was accidental due to ignorance or due to redactional activity or if it was intentionally left out. Now, considering the evidence listed above, if the Moses cycle was a product of a, a returning scribe in the middle of the first millennium, he would have been unlike any writer before or after until the modern era in light of the massive and complex knowledge of socio-rhetorical devices, linguistical structures, uh, of centuries past etymologies, and various historical and cultural nuances. <clears throat> Again, we shouldn't expect them uh, that person who's so ahead of their time that they can track inflation across cultures and continents and languages and economic systems to simply forget the name of the pharaoh, right? That, that, that just, again, just seems so... It just so out of place. So in light of that, many scholars have come to think that the omission of Pharaoh's name in the Exodus tradition was actually an intentional polemical device. It's no accident that in the same narrative that the reader learns the personal name of the Hebrew god Yahweh and how powerful he is, that his arch rival in the story is left anonymous and shown to be totally impotent in the events. This fits completely in line with the almost universal polemical device used during the New Kingdom period and found in many of the Egyptian inscriptions from that period. We find a good example of this in the annals of Tutmose III, uh, Amenhotep II, and Seti I during the Ramesside period, where uh, it was used to show total dominations of one's enemies. They were shown to be dominated by being omitted by name from history. Uh, a funny a, a, a little modern illustration of this can be seen in Harry Potter's He Who Is Not To Be Named, right? It's a, it's a reference that they're so bad, they're so, they're so other, we just, we want to completely remove them from the historiographical record, right? The Egyptians did this, and so, and they did this as a polemical device. And so uh, anyone, who, again, who's familiar with my work, who's familiar with the work with John Currid, uh, who's familiar with the work uh, uh, of Wenham, of Walton, of Waltke, <clears throat> of Heiser, of, of any of these uh, you know, major Old Testament scholars will know the polemics that's happening um, throughout the Exodus cycle. So, for example, um, it says that Yahweh uh, saved Israel with his mighty right hand or his mighty right arm. This was actually something that was ascribed to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was actually the one who protected Ma'at, or, or peace. It's the equivalent of kind of uh, the, the, the Jewish concept of shalom, all-encompassing peace and well-being. Pharaoh was said to protect Ma'at by his mighty right hand. And so there's a polemical the device that's happening where the author of Exodus is saying it's not Pharaoh that has the mighty right hand to, to, to protect Ma'at or cause chaos and judgment. It's Yahweh that has the mighty right hand. And so there, and, there, and by the way, there's 
example after example after example. Every single one of the plagues is a living example of a polemic against a specific deity of the Egyptian pantheon. There's just layers of polemics after polemics after polemics throughout the, the Exodus cycle. So it's not surprising then that the, the author of Exodus uses this kind of polemical whitewashing that I'm going to not even name the opponent of, of, of my king, of my God, right? So there's, we learn the name of, of God, Yahweh, and then it's not surprising that the polemic completely leaves out the name of Pharaoh. Right, that's not actually that that fits very well with all the polemical devices that are happening. Now, if the narratives were written later during the first millennium, the late first millennium after Israel returned to the land and its scribes had all been educated in Babylonian or Assyrian courts rather than someone like Moses educated in Egyptian courts, then we should actually expect the narrative to reflect their polemical practices later titled by historians called the damnatio memore, literally the damnation of memory. In this practice, the, conquers en the conquered enemies, their names, would be meticulously kept on record and would often then be written on pots and dashed to the ground, symbolically demolishing them. They would be excoriated that way. This practice was again almost universally done in Assyrian, Babylonian, Aramean texts and only developed very late in Egyptian history, you know, far after the period that even critical scholars uh, want to, to, to date uh, the critical uh, their their critical dating of the the biblical text. In fact, we find in later biblical traditions, such as in Kings and Chronicles, that were written contemporary contemporaneously, or at least likely large bits of it were uh, with Babylon and Assyria and so forth. We actually do find the scrupulous record keeping of defeated kings of Israel. So we find the two types of polyg uh, polemical traditions that of the Exodus and the Egyptian uh, background, and that of the, the Israelite uh, monarchy reflecting the, the later uh, biblical traditions coming from Babylon and Assyria. We find those, those different periods actually using the polemical devices that were common in their context, in their not only time of composition, but their background cultural milieu and how polemics was done. So that's another strong evidence um, for, for the early date of the, uh, of the composition of uh, the book of Exodus and the larger uh, context of the Pentateuch. Now, the details of the opposition of the Hebrews also dovetails well with the traditional dating of the political climate at that time. We know that during early to middle second millennium, around 200 to 1400 uh, BCE, Again, large numbers of Semites were present in Egypt, not only due to famine and drought in the land, but also as a result of military captivity. Egypt was literally teeming with Semitic immigrants. These conditions simply did not exist to such a degree after the expulsion of the Hyksos. For the children of Abraham to migrate to Egypt to escape famine in Canaan would have been common fare during that time period, but would have been completely out of place during the later post-exile period. There's also a strange comment in Exodus 12:38 that says a mixed multitude went up out of, out of Egypt with Israel. This is most likely a reference to a large number of 
other Semites who joined with Israel and likely converted to Judaism in response to the mighty works of Yahweh. Sometimes people think, oh, this is a bunch of Egyptians going up with them. <clears throat> now, th there may have been some Egyptians, but it's likely a large, you know, not every Semite was a Jew, right? There, there, there was all kinds of different Semitic groups and tribes and peoples um, that likely would have gone up with Israel back to their native land. And, and, and by the way, there is some evidence also of this where uh, when Israel was conquering the land, uh, if you actually look on a map, there's some there's some dark spots that were never commanded to conquest, and and uh, some researchers have suggested this is because this was they 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 still had home ties to some of those lands. They didn't need to conquest those ones because their families were already there. <laughs> um, so there there are these little uh, blackout spaces if you look at a map on where the conquest, especially I believe it's in uh, uh, up in, uh, in the north uh, the northeastern regions. Now. <clears throat> Uh, so, so this this would explain why Israel went from being quite small to a massive powerhouse so rapidly at that time period because they inherited this this big group of mixed multitude Semites who were go, who were you know dispossessed from the land and were now going back up with the children of Abraham as Israel as the mixed multitude uh, going back up into the land. We sometimes are fooled by later legal pronouncements of God to not commingle with other Semitic tribes, uh, like the Canaanites, for example, and assume that this was always the case. But we have to remember that the Exodus event and, and the giving of the law following were the nationalizing events and would have included this mixed multitude that came up out of Egypt with the children of Abraham. So that mixed multitude plus the children of Abraham is what is constituted at the giving of the law at Sinai as Israel. And from that, they are commanded to not go and intermarry with the peoples who are still in the land, like the Canaanites and the Amorites, for example. Uh, but, but Israel was originally kind of a melting pot of many different Semitic people. This may also explain some of the obscure dietary and customs and law that would need to be put in place to conform outsiders to the new tribe. Moses' request for the Israelites to have some time off to worship their God was actually common practice during that period, that earlier period. Uh, he was actually quite reasonable to expect Pharaoh to give his people a kind of furlough to go and worship. It would, it would have been very uh, culturally shocking that the request was not initially granted, actually, during that same time period. This was not the case again later during Babylonian and Assyrian history. Now, I'm not one to identify the Hyksos with the Hebrews, nor the Apiru, by the way, which is literally the, the, the Hebrew. Uh, some identify those as the Hebrews. Uh, <clears throat> I... I don't think we have to do either of those for, for my case to be made. But we do know that after the Hyksos expulsion, Semites were commonly viewed as possible subversives. We, we now have evidence of massive building projects during the 18th dynasty following the expulsion of the Hyksos in their previous territory of the Avaris, or, or what's called Pi Ramesses. It's simply unquestioned that Semites were the, prob prob uh, the primary labor force for these building projects. Uh, so again, we have all this evidence of 
<coughs> of these Semites in this time period, in this uh, in in this area of Egypt, being a subjective class of people as a primary slave labor force for these building projects, which again mirrors the 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 Exodus story perfectly. And again, it's it just kind of beggars you know <laughs> the imagination that that someone you know some some scribe in in post-exilic uh, you know post-Babylon post-Assyria educated in their schools would have been able to do this type of, uh, you know, would have been a progenitor of modern historiographic methods. Again, it's just, it's just so far beyond belief. Now, the final thing that I want to look at is, again, related, not necessarily an amaziology related to names, but etymology related to many of the words in the Exodus cycle that are clearly Egyptian in their etymology. Or again, uh, maybe if, if their root etymology is, is somewhat uncertain, the the it clearly came through uh, Egyptian backgrounds as a as an Egyptian loan word into a transliterated Hebrew word. Um, so something that 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 we wouldn't expect if the texts were written centuries later by authors again trained in Babylonian or Assyrian schools uh, or courts. Uh, some of these examples are are the words for basket. Uh, which is Tabat, uh, Papyrus, which is uh, the Gome, Pitch, which is Zapet, uh, Reeds, uh, Sup, uh, or, or River, which is Hayeor. Um, what, now, what's so interesting actually about the word Hayeor is that the normal Hebrew word for river, Nahar, is not used. Um, and, and again, Hayeor is used in, in, in the Exodus cycle, uh, which is a transliteration of the Egyptian loan word. In fact, the absence of the T from the Hebrew transliteration poses even further proof for an early composition because the omission of the T sound, <clears throat> the, the, it actually would have been Hateyor, uh, would have been the later version. The omission of the T matches perfectly with an 18th dynasty vocalization that was no longer used in the middle of the first millennium post-exile period. So it's, it not only reflects the Egyptian loanword transliteration, it actually represents a very specific regional and, 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 and chronologically timed vocalization of that word that didn't exist anymore uh, in the first millennium. So again, how would a post-exilic Jewish scribe know how to transliterate into Hebrew a specific e Egyptian vocalization form from a thousand years before in a different context, different language, different continent, a different culture? It's just, it's, just, it's just unfathomable at that point. Another word like this is the, the word for a, a river's brink or a bank. This is the word sapa. Uh, it's another word um, that's used for, um, uh, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an Egyptian loan word into Hebrew. It's not one of the normal words that, that, they, that the Hebrew text uses for a river's bank. Actually, there's... There's a surprising a, a lot of Hebrew words for a river's uh, brink or bank. There's Yad, there's pa, the Panim, Gada, Kasa. There's, there's all kinds of these Hebrew words uh, for a river or bank, specifically the bank of the river. But 
this one <clears throat> is is really only used in these Egyptian contexts, and it's a transliteration of one commonly used in the second millennium Egyptian context, which was used specifically for the edge of the Nile River, not just the edge of any river generally. By the way, this is this same oddity occurs in the Joseph cycle at Genesis 41, 3 and 17, again, referring to the bank of the of the Nile River. And so it not only is an Egyptian loan word uh, from, you know, the second millennium from the right period, uh, it also is a word that the nuance was specifically not just a river's bank, but the Nile River's bank. And this, you know, the, the idea from the critical authors would be that this, this Israelite, you know, scribe from the, the end, the middle or the end of the first millennium, not only would have foregone all of the Hebrew words for a river's bank, they would have used this Egyptian loan word and specifically have used it with the right caveat, with the right kind of nuance that it's not just any river's brink, that, that's not how it's used. It's specifically of the Nile River's uh, bank or brink. So again, it's just, it's just it would just be un, un, unthinkable for, for all of these dovetail evidences for this scribe to be able to get all of those all of those features. Now, Again, this is not all of the reasons for accepting early dating of the Pentateuch or of the Exodus cycle uh, or for thinking that Israel, uh, the, the, the Jews uh, existed out of Egypt and the Israelites came out of Egypt with an Egyptian background, context, uh, language, and, uh, you know, um, language influenced by that, that time period. Um, but uh, it, it's an important case for understanding that. By the way, for those of you who are interested in these types of issues on, on the podcast, I've also done a lot of work showing that Genesis 1 is a non-literal polemical temple text and has strong Egyptian roots as well. So for those interested in this topic and would like to see more of how uh, it relates to the Pentateuch and the Egyptian background and so forth, I recommend going to the podcast Again, this the YouTube channel is meant more for overcoming some of these objections. Maybe I'll get to Genesis one if I'm dealing with some some skeptical, uh, you know, reactions, thinking all of us Christians are just kind of you know hyper literal young earth creationist fundamentalists. Um, I might get into some of that then, uh, but I'll have to tailor it uh, rather than being a biblical theology. Again, answering some of those skeptical uh, objections. But for now, those skeptics who want to argue that there's no historical value, there's no historical truth, there's, you know, it's just all, it's just all myth, and it's, you know, it's make-believe, or the critical scholars have shown by, by you know, source-critical theories and redaction theories and, and all, you know, all that kind of stuff, that, that it's a late composition, that it's all made up, you know, way, way, way later, we have no evidence for the, you know, the Pentateuch and Israel and Egypt and all that kind of stuff. Now, I think that there, this, there's sufficient evidence, not only what I presented, but if you go to those sources that I provided a bunch more in there, to argue not only for the early dating, but also for the reliability of these texts as we have them. So uh, again, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please uh, feel free to put a comment in the video to comment on the blog. You can visit that blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. You can email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, or uh, you can visit the Freed Thinker group on Facebook. Thank you again for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this content, and we'll, uh, we'll come back again. Good night, and God bless.